Producer Nick speaking. The show where producer Nick takes over. Do you guys remember this little moment in last week's episode? Do you remember they said something like this? That being said, I'm a little bit worried, Harrison. Because mm-hmm. you know how like producer Nick has sabotaged the podcast in the past? Just... I'm a little worried about that. Yeah. He has access to I'm everything. I'm a little worried that, you know, this is supposed to be a clerically speaking podcast. Yeah. But at the same time, Nick has all the passwords to the accounts and everything. Yeah. And I just hope that he's responsible enough to yeah. respect our product. Yes. And what we try to do here. That's right. And I hope he can contain himself and just yeah. be disciplined enough to leave well enough alone. That is what I hope. Yes. Do you hope that as well, I, Father Harrison? Uh, I expect it. Yes. <laughs> I expect it because he's a mature Catholic married man who yeah. should know responsibility well. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I would say it's very unlikely that you will see a new episode next week on your feed because we won't be doing it. Yeah. And if there is one, I it's would say like, very unlikely. Yeah. So you probably shouldn't even check <laughs> your episode feed next week. You shouldn't. And they actually thought, <laughs> they actually thought I wouldn't do anything to mess with their podcast as they take their time off. Well, I mean, you've, you've known me for a long time. I've been producing this podcast for so long. And you know what? You hear priests say this all the time. You hear priests say this. They say, You know what? It's not just the job of the priest to go out into the world and evangelize. They say things like this, I work at the church, but you guys, you normal lay people have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people because you go where we can't go. Well, guess where I am right now, where you guys aren't. Yes, you wanted to take some time off, and yes, the the reasons were good. Uh, But you know what? It's time for the laity, the common man, the church worker to have a voice. And so, uh, okay, uh, evil gimmick aside, um, I'm just going to be filling in for them for a little bit. So if you ever, ever start this podcast and you hear the creepy clerically speaking music at the beginning, rest assured that is a producer Nick podcast and feel free to absolutely, absolutely press next. Because what you're going to get is a lay person talking. Uh, A little background on myself. I am a youth minister in the north of Pittsburgh. I've worked for the Diocese of Pittsburgh uh, as a digital media strategist. So I went to plenty of parishes, uh, helping them with their digital strategy. Everything from teaching people how to copy and paste to teaching people how to live stream even before the pandemic, uh, setting up websites and things like that. So I have a lot of experience in parishes. Prior to that, I worked for the National Catholic Reporter. Uh, Yes, I said the reporter. That one. I worked for that one. Yeah. Don't worry. It's not going to be that kind of podcast, though. And um, here's what you can expect from the Producer Nick podcast. One, banter by myself or with my illustrious wife, 
Riley. Um, I don't know if she wants to be on this podcast. My guess is she doesn't. Uh, but you can expect a little bit of banter. You can expect the Summa Tweetologica, but I get to pick the tweets. <laughs> um, and then hopefully I'll be talking to someone about parish life or basic evangelization experiences that I've had, um, or interactions that I've had with priests. Look, this isn't Clerically Speaking. This isn't at all. We'll be even playing some clips of Clerically Speaking, some of the best of, and I'll be giving commentary on it. Uh, we just want to make sure that you guys have something coming through on your feed every single week. So I'll be playing the greatest hits, like clips from the Batman episode. <laughs> No, I'm not going to do that. That would be terrible. It is the worst episode. I remember when this show first started, um, I thought it was like my older brother's little pet project. He's like, oh, I want to do a podcast. I thought, well, I have radio experience. Uh, I went to John Carroll University. I used to edit promos for um, the radio and I'm like, I know how to edit podcasts and radio things. I'll do this little project for you. But because of all the listeners listening to Father Harrison and Father Anthony, this podcast has amassed like 10,000 listeners a week. It's absolutely incredible. And so when they first started, I think the best episodes of the podcast were when the two priests talk about priest things. So when they decided to become like, I don't know, like a Batman comics cartoon podcast for just one podcast i'm like guys stay in your wheelhouse i know what you're thinking producer nick you are a lay person talking unclerically speaking stay in your wheelhouse well my answer to you is no no i will not look i was talking to the two priests the other day and uh just like they said they were worn out uh and they just needed time to regroup. There's so many podcasts that normally during this period of time when people take a break, they play like the best of episodes. But we know that so many people have started our podcast from episode one. And so we want to bring you some new content. There's nothing worse than when you want to log on to a podcast. Do you log on to a podcast? No, you don't. There's nothing worse than when you waste time on your phone downloading a podcast and there's nothing on there. It kind of stinks. It's like, oh, this is just the old stuff again. So one more time, if you hear the creepy music at the beginning of the podcast, it's a producer Nick podcast. If you're here for the clerics and the clerics perspective, you're, you're, you're just not going to hear it that week. Okay, enough banter. It's time for my favorite segment of the entire show, the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica The Summa 
Theologica was St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, uh, thing. I don't have the script. I, oh. They normally say the same thing. You know, the Summa Theologica is when, when Thomas Aquinas talks about, uh, you know, stuff in a, in a book because he was really smart. And the Summa Tweetologica is when I talk about things that are a little bit less smart, but still have to do with the faith. Okay, first tweet. This one comes from me. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, at Papa Sharapa says, every Thursday, our parish hosts a holy half hour in our adoration chapel for babies and toddlers where they sing songs, babble, scream, laugh, and, and, and run around in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Thursdays are the best. And this is one of my favorite things that our parish does. We just advertise it to young parents to come meet other young parents and bring their kids to a half hour in the chapel. And what's really cool about this is like, you know how Jesus says, let the children come to me? I can't think of a more literal way that we can do that right now, uh, other than bringing our kids to an adoration chapel. And the funniest thing is, when, when I first heard about this, I looked into the adoration chapel, and I heard all this yelling. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening? This is bad. I looked inside, and I saw these kids running around. I'm like, oh my gosh, the kids are playing in front of Jesus. And one of my favorite parts is that people will actually start coming to this holy half hour, like older adults, just to just to smile and just to watch these kids like babble and drool in front of Jesus. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my uh, one of my coworkers at the parish I work at. And, you know, parishes do a really, really good job in getting you involved in the faith uh, when you're baptized, normally a priest will, you know, have some kind of baptism prep for you to go through, which is good. And uh, it, it prepares the parents for the sacrament. And, and, you know, when you ask the godparents and the parents, like, do you want to get your kid baptized? Do you understand what all of that entails? And you have to answer yes. And I don't think anyone understands what it entails to raise someone in the faith. So we do a good job at that point. And then a lot of parishes do a good job starting around second grade when you can refer uh, receive first communion but where I think like the parishes could really step it up is that like what happens after baptism and before first communion are we just not there for you I mean we have child care maybe at a mass or something but that's it maybe a children's liturgy or, or, or something but like this to me was an answer to that. What do you do in that in-between stage? Uh, and, and what else is great is like, I just saw a lot of young moms and some dads talking about their kids and talking about their faith as a natural result of just allocating one hour of our, you know, 10 hour adoration day to the kids. Really, really cool stuff. Okay, next tweet comes from Father Dan Beeman uh, at In the Line of Mel. Man, that part is hard. Guys, when they mess up people's Twitter handles on this podcast, it's it's hard because like, I don't know, what was your first like AIM like name for like instant messenger? Mine was something ridiculous. I think it was like Mr. Onion because I thought I was funny in grade school or middle school when I when I got it. Uh or like Papa Sharapa, 
Like, if you see the way my last name is spelled, like, it, it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, Father D Dan Beeman says, terrible journalism. Number one, Catholic parishes pay payroll taxes. Number two, the average parish employs six people who depend on their moderate salaries to live. Should they be laid off because they work for a nonprofit? And number three, Catholic ministries operate on a very tight budget. They're not rich. Now, this is this thing that he just tweeted is quote tweeting uh, a tweet from the Associated Press saying scores of Roman Catholic dioceses had over 10 billion in cash and other available funds while receiving at least 1.5 billion in emergency small business aid. Church officials say the money was needed to pay uh, needed when the government lockdown orders ended uh, Sunday services. Okay. Okay, this, this, this thing has been making me bonkers because there have been a few reports like this that absolutely make me, like, kooky, crazy, uh, cranky. Let's just say cranky. That's a nice way of putting how this made me feel. I feel like everyone thinks the Catholic Church is some giant evil organization where they have, like, loads and loads of money underneath the basement of the rectory. Like, priests sit on thrones of solid gold where evil candles are lit everywhere, where they have these diabolical discussions about how dumb the rest of the world are, and, and they're actually all a bunch, bunch of atheists, and this is a bunch of hocus-pocus, but they get their money. <laughs> Guys, if you look at, like, whenever I see something like this, and I see the mean, mean comments underneath like a Facebook post about this or like why is the church getting money I challenge you this I challenge you to go into any Catholic church and ask to see their finances a lot of parishes will even make all of their finances available on their website go ahead and ask a parish worker if you're bold enough ask them how much they make and ask them the amount of work that they do. Now, in every job, there's injustices. And in every job, every, plenty of people work hard and don't get paid enough. So I, I'm not going down that, that street. I'm not. It, it, it's ridiculous. But this notion that, you know, the church is just one big organization rather than classified as like small little nonprofits. Like your little parish down the street it is not like a part of this Vatican church thing. Another thing people say, like, you know, uh, you know, if the church would just sell off all of its priceless artwork or just sell off one of those giant churches, then they would have enough money to do this and that. It makes me bonkers. I'm like, how about the person who could buy that church? How about that person rather than buy the church? give their money to all these organizations. I mean, who, who cares that we're like the most charitable organization on the planet Earth? It makes me absolutely bonkers when I see stuff like this. And why? Because like I'm a media guy and I know that perception is reality for a lot of people. And so what does the church have going against it? What's the church's perception right now? Well, we're dealing with like the classics, like the hot button issues. Oh, the church is oppressive because of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Number two, uh, what's the most recent thing as of 2018? Well, the church isn't safe for our young people. 
what's another thing? Well, the church has boatloads of money. Like, forget the fact that the church is is leading people to Jesus at its best. It's leading people to Jesus, and ha- having them discover a certain sense of interior freedom when they meet the Lord. But that doesn't make a good headline. And like in the news world, the best story wins. Why does news exist? The news exists to make money. When Ted Turner made like CNN a 24-hour news network, it was the first time that you had to have enough news uh, to, to go for 24 hours. And if there wasn't news, you better make some. And if you, if, if you don't have any to make, then you better talk about it and get all these commentators about it. And so our obsession with reality TV has turned into the news and what we think news is. Because we love, 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 love the drama of news. I mean, I, I, so this just feeds into that. And like, here I am, a person just trying to say that like the church is normal. Believing in God is normal and cool and chill and nice. Uh, it can help you. It can help your life. And I have to put up with this stuff. And, and we all have to put up with this stuff. It's just a bummer. It's just a bummer when you see journalism like this. Uh, So I'd encourage you all, like, go to your local parish and ask them about their finances. Ask them if they're in the red or in the black. More often than not, they're in the uh, the red. (laughs) They are. I know a few parishes that are, are, like, relatively healthy and can maintain a bad year if they had one bad year, but after that, they'd be sunk. The next tweet is from at KDKA. That's a local Pittsburgh uh, news station. It is. Uh, it says this. Fish emoji. It's nearly that time again. Fish emoji. We're compiling our KDKA fish fry guide. Submit your organization's socially distanced fish fry information to us. Click here. And there's this picture of a fish with a chef hat on it. it looks very, very cute. Uh, I picked this tweet out. Why? Because uh, I love the culture of fish fries. It's so funny. Like in Pittsburgh, we're one of those cities where Catholicism has so infiltrated the regular culture, at least on this level, at least on the food level that our local like news outlets find it profitable they get clicks uh on their website so that can people can find the best fish fries now when i found out that there are some dioceses there are some regions of the united states that don't have fish fries in lent i thought to myself really It was such a cultural thing here in Pittsburgh that, I mean, people will go from fish fry to fish fry every single Friday, sometimes multiple fish fries on a Friday, uh, just to find out which one is the best. It's a great night to make date night, uh, to go to a fish fry, to meet uh, other people at other parishes, pick up their bulletin, see what they're doing in their parish. Um, But fish fries, man, they're delicious. You know how, like, so I'm a youth minister, and people often will ask me, why can't we eat fish on Fridays? And if you're rolling your eyes right now because you've heard that a million times, I understand. And if you're, uh, if you genuinely don't know, they've done, the guys have done a podcast on this before, I'm pretty sure. But the thing that I think is most interesting is it's really not about the fish. When people ask, ask, like, ugh. 
why can't we eat meat on Fridays? Like, seriously? Why do we have these dumb man-made rules? And, and people will complain about it in various ways. They'll say things like, uh, it's a dumb man-made rule. Uh, it's not enhancing my spiritual life. It's, uh, you know, what does that have to do with God or prayer or Lent? And you hear some, like, some arguments against this. Like, why? Why, why do we have to eat fish on Fridays? Rather than, or just abstain from meat, really. I mean, you can eat whatever you want. Just abstain from meat on Fridays. For me, it's not about the fish and it's not about the meat. I think the, when you ask, like, what's the real rub? Why are people so like frustrated that you can't eat meat on Fridays? It's because you're told not to. Yeah, it's like we're all kids, right? When dad said, don't do this thing, and you're like, why can't I do this thing? Or your mom's like, no, you're not allowed to. And you're like, but I want to. It's the same thing with the church. Because the church tells us to do plenty of things that are outside of our reasoning, right? Uh, the church tells us all kinds of things that we might not understand. The church has a lot of very, like, high morals, like things that are hard to reach. And we might come up with a million reasons why, but the, 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 why, why we, we can't do it, or it's too hard, or something like that. But I think deep down inside of us, sometimes we just don't like being told what to do. I don't like being told what to do. I mean, my American sense of freedom says, like, I can do whatever I want. I'm an American. And I get that. I get that. I get that sense of freedom. That, that, that makes a bit of sense. But really what's much more freeing to me is, is being told what to do. Like, and I might not be alone in this. I might be alone in this, but isn't it great? Like after a long day of work where I have to be the one to make all these decisions and I have to be the one to make all these, you know, actions. And if I choose one thing, you know, my organization will go in one direction and that's on me. And if I choose another thing, then, uh, you know, the organization will go in the other direction and that's on me. What's really refreshing, what's really nice is when someone else makes that decision for you. And you don't have to be held accountable for it. What's neat is when the church makes decisions for us and the church has all of these rules and uh, things that it tells us to do. It's not a bad thing because we don't believe that the church ever errs. And we have to ask ourselves, like, is the Holy Spirit with the church? Well, if the answer has to be yes, it is. Yes, it is the church. Okay. So for these basic teachings, these, these catechism teachings, I'm not saying like if Father Anthony says, you must uh, give me nice sweaters. No, no, that's not like magisterial teaching. I get that. But when the church tells us these basic magisterial things or these basic rules, they're meant to give us a type of freedom that says, if I submit to you, church, then I will have greater interior freedom. And if I don't understand it, sure, go investigate it and pray with it and wrestle with it. One of my favorite prayers is like, Lord, one of us is right, me 
Nick Sharapa, who lives in the north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or you and your church? One of us is right, me or the church. So if I'm wrong, then change me. And if you're wrong, then change the church. And I've prayed that honestly, because you can absolutely pray that with like a chip on your shoulder, or you can pray that like honestly. And every time I've prayed it honestly and fervently and over and over, and I vented to the Lord, like, show me how I'm wrong then. Otherwise, if the church is doing something wrong, this is bad news. Every time, my opinion's been changed. And sometimes it takes a long time to figure out. It's okay to wrestle with things. As long as we keep on wrestling to the point where we figure out what the truth is. And normally, it's been my experience that the church is right and it doesn't err. Bummer. And with that, we're going to move into pastoral counsel, the segment of the show where the laity get to talk about whatever they want. No more of this like presbyteral exhortations. Me, 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 me. Yeah, whatever. Uh, let's head over to uh, pastoral counsel. Ugh. And now it's time for pastoral counsel where the laity are empowered to say words. Oh, yippee! Good for you, lay people! You have opinions! I think there are like four steps um, in the beginning of someone's spiritual life. I think there's four major steps. Now, this is just... This is... uh, Remember... This is producer Nick. This is not necessarily uh, what Father Harrison thinks or what Father Anthony thinks. But I think there's, uh, it, it could be helpful to, to break uh, one's spiritual growth down into four steps. I think it could be. The first step is that purely adolescence learning of, of the faith. Right, we have picture books of Adam and Eve, you know, the, you know like the, the covered ones. We have, uh, we, we learn the story of uh, Moses and Noah and Jesus, and we, we, we learn the basics. And then we learn basic rote prayer. Like a uh, rote prayer meaning the Our Father, the Glory Be, the Hail Mary, maybe even the parts of Mass. This is kind of like the adolescence learning of the faith. We're, we're very um, good at learning stories. In the parish, we see this as faith formation or CCD or catechesis of the Good Shepherd, where we learn the beginning steps of contemplation as we touch things and as we sing and as we learn these basics. And that's good. And then as we get a little bit older into second grade, uh, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, we start to get our reasoning in. And right around middle school, we start asking bigger questions. I mean, my middle schoolers that I minister to, I guess they're not mine. They're the Lord's. Of course they are. But the middle schoolers that I minister to are starting to ask questions about philosophy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Their minds are starting to ask the big questions like who created God? And so these big questions need big answers. And they need answers that are approachable for a a middle schooler. 
And so we're still in this adolescence sort of stage in our life, but right around the end of middle school into high school, a lot of people are able to have an experience of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that can't happen earlier, but I find that most people have their, uh, who are going through regular faith formation have an experience of Jesus right around then. And, and maybe if this happened to you later in your life, I'll describe what it is. It's like the moment when God went from being something kind of vague and far away to something much more personal. Like you just kind of knew that God was real, not with just your brain, but with your heart too. I know that's very sort of simple language, but I'm just a simple layman. I am not Father Harrison using the big words and the big things, the, 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 the philosophically and the Cardinal Ratzinger. Although I really appreciate it. I learned a lot from it. He, he's, he is such a smart dude. Be, behind Father Harrison's smartness too, he's like extremely pastoral. If you just talk to him in the one-on-one, -on -one, he's so casual, nice, and awesome. Uh, Anthony in the one-on-one? -on -one? Well, uh, I hear he's nice, but not to his brother. Meanie face. Nah, I'm just kidding. But we all have this awakening moment where God becomes real to us. For me, that was, I had one of those typical moments in Eucharistic adoration where, like, time stopped. I mean, we, we, we would describe it as consolation. And God said that you are mine to me, not just in a, um, in a, uh, like a mental way, but like an experiential way. Like it was happening in front of me. It was the difference between knowing that God loves you in your brain and then knowing uh, that God loves you with everything of who you are. Every part of who you are feels it in that moment. Like he just said it to you just a few minutes ago. And that's cool. And normally when we have that awakening moment, we're really excited and we're, we might even be a little bit reckless because we want to learn about everything about God at that point. Because the way I describe a moment of consolation is like, it's better than a surprise birthday party. It, 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 it's better than um, a roller coaster. It, it's better than um, whatever you like. <laughs> it, it says, I love you and, and takes care of all of your negative experiences. Like in that moment when God says he loves you, you, you don't have the lies of the devil flying through your head. You don't have... Um, uh, anger at some other thing. You're, you're normally at peace and it's the coolest. So you're a little bit reckless. You get out of, get out of that moment. You're like, wow, I want to participate. I want to do stuff. I want to be involved in my parish. I want to fix everything. And, and that's great. And so we start learning more and more and more about our faith until stage three comes and that's doubt. Oh my gosh. You know what? When the guys come back, I'm going to ask them to do a podcast about doubt. I feel like we've all been there. I remember um, I was raised a little bit in a faith that was kind of, um, it, it, it was, what do you call that when uh, things are fundamentalist? It was a little bit fundamentalist. Like the world was created in seven days, 2,000 years ago, that kind of thing. Now, I, I don't want to get into that. Uh, that's a whole separate podcast thing. But like normally fundamentalists get really beaten up by the new atheist. New atheist meaning uh, this wave of atheism that came after 9-11. Uh, 
there was a lot of anger at religion inspiring people to do bad things. And so atheism just boomed right after 9-11. You had people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and, and, and others like just pounding and destroying the, the basic arguments of, of some of these fundamentalists. So I remember in college when most people do lose their faith, I began to lose mine. I remember one particular night that, uh, man, I, I, I was watching these new atheists on YouTube for hours and hours and hours and hours, and I didn't eat, I didn't sleep. I was so glued to my computer because if I lost my, my faith, if faith wasn't real, then like the cru crucifix I wore around my neck wouldn't matter. Right? Like I remember like running laps uh, around my campus to get rid of my anxiety. I remember punching the floor being like, maybe if my fists hurt, then this will stop me from this manic pain of, of having to admit the fact that God might not be real. I was absolutely freaking out because I didn't have the answers, the good, smart Catholic answers to the new atheists. And so I remember texting my older brother, Anthony, Father Anthony, who was in seminary at the time. I'm like, this huge text that should have been an email. I mean, it was that long saying like, I know you've had troubles in seminary at times, but I'm having trouble in college right now. Uh, I don't think God is real. And when I typed out, I don't think God is real. I doubted that, that experiential aha moment when God said that he loved me in adoration, in prayer, when I was in high school. I started to think that I was duped with those things that I learned when I was a kid. And those stories were just that, stories. And so when I woke up the next day, I, I, I remember like I passed out at four in the morning in my bed thinking I was going to throw up. I was so nauseous. I remember looking at a building, you know, the, the, the night before thinking, gosh, without God, if that building burned to the ground, people would die. People would jump out of the windows and it wouldn't be bad and it wouldn't be good because without God, there's uh, no point, man. Like I took my atheism seriously, which a lot of atheists don't really do. The next morning I woke up and I didn't put the crucifix around my neck. I, I put it in my pocket as a compromise because I devoted so much of my life to this faith thing. I went to youth group for years. I, I read books and stuff. And that began my journey into um, relearning my faith. That's why people like Cardinal Ratzinger and, and all these smart people that the guys have talked about on this podcast von Balthazar and stuff. That's why they're so important because the next level is to, if you're being fought, if your faith is being destroyed by arguments from other people, we need apologists. We need good people to explain the faith in a smart way. And we have them. I remember, you know, you would, I, the first time I read Cardinal Ratzinger, like it was tough. Sometimes I had to read a sentence a couple times to see what he was getting at. Like my faith needed to be challenged. And if there was one person that sort of helped along the way in that process, it would be uh, Bishop Robert Barron. I mean, he answered those new atheists. 
so well in a way that was clear. And then Ratzinger became more approachable. And so, you know, if you watch Bishop Barron videos and you, you listen to Father Mike Schmitz and they get you to a, a good point, go the next step and go to the more academic people if you're feeling bored because we need to keep learning more and more about our faith. It takes us out of those doubt things, those doubt moments. At least it did me. And then uh, I guess the next step is, I, I, I remember I studied abroad in Rome and I, I knelt down in front of St. Peter's Basilica at nighttime and there was no one there. It was beautiful. It must've been like two in the morning or something. The tourists all go to bed. And I remember reclaiming my Catholic faith. I was like, I've read a lot about it. I can answer the new atheists. I understand what faith is and where it belongs in all of this, in all of this doubt. And you know what? I'm ready to be Catholic again. And it was the coolest. And so the next part of the faith, I think, is living a life of the Holy Spirit. And that's just a loaded thing to say. You've heard that before, haven't you? Living a life of the Holy Spirit. I, I spent so much time reading books because I was cursed with a very, it's a good curse, <laughs> like a, a, a curse of doubt. And so my brain like grew when it came to the faith, but now I needed to just remember who my God was, not just someone to think about, but someone to experience and someone who could guide me and someone whose voice I could actually hear. That's a weird thing. Like, has a priest ever said this to you? Like, you need more silence in your life so that you can hear God. I've heard that a million times, but every single time I go to pray, it's some kind of combination of me nodding off or uh, being frustrated. And I, I just wish a priest said that to me. I think um, the guys do that very well on this podcast, that, that prayer is a discipline to be learned. Think about it this way. Uh, when you were, I don't know, just learning how to walk, how many times did you fall down? Now, I know you don't know. Your parents probably know. They'd probably say a million times. How many times did you bonk your head as a kid before you learned how to dodge things? Uh, how long did it take you to learn a musical instrument? And how many times did you mess up? If we think that like prayer is just going to be this thing that uh, we don't have to continually practice for the rest of our lives, uh, I think you'd, you'd be wrong. Like that's why how so many people say, Lord, teach me how to pray. I've heard the oldest and most wise people say, Lord, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. Because I think that's the last step in the journey. Is to say, like, Lord, I want to hear you. And so teach me. Some things that have been working for me right now, I, I try to play with my prayer. And so I'll say, like, uh, Lord God, be with me, be with me, be with me, be with me. Get these dumb thoughts out of my head, out of my head, out of my head. Like, I'll just do anything to sort of start to block out the other thoughts in my brain. So that I can actually hear God what does hearing the voice of God feel like? I don't know. Everyone would have their own way of explaining this. 
I think for me, the, the analogy that I sort of use to explain it to people is like, have you ever had a million thoughts going on in your head and you can't decipher which one is which? It's like a room full of ping pong balls that are all bouncing like crazy against every wall and every ping pong ball is a different thought and every wall it just keeps bouncing it harder and harder and the balls bounce against each other and and you start thinking, 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 thinking to the point where you're like, oh, I just wanna shut off my brain. And so you kind of go to bed, you know? Um, yeah, those are our thoughts, and it's not very clear. Like, which one of those thoughts is a good one? To me, it's like a bunch of arrows get fired off at the same time, aiming at a target, and all of them miss. But one of them, boom, hits the, the bullseye. And then all the other arrows drop. And the crowd goes, whoa. And you're like... I think this is right. So you take that one thought that hit the bullseye, that stopped the other thoughts, and, and you bounce it against uh, scripture. Does this sound like something Jesus would say? Is this thought for me? So you bounce it against scripture. Why is my computer dinging? My wife just texted me. Oh, she's so nice. You bounce it against scripture. And if it sounds like something Jesus would say, then, then you go tell a priest maybe. Or share it with another good Christian friend and be like, I think God's trying to tell me this. And normally, if you're talking to someone else who's also praying and also going through this process, they'll be able to affirm or not affirm. Not to tell you what to do. Now, that's up to you. But they'll be able to affirm like, you know what? That does sound like God. And so the rest of your life is working on this discipline of maintaining your prayer life and continuously, continuously learning how to pray. Now, that's where I'm at right now. I'm 29 years old. I have experienced those things. I feel like I'm bad at praying. And sometimes I have, the Lord teaches me little nuggets of, of good things through prayer. And maybe there is a fifth step in your spiritual life or a sixth or a seventh. And maybe some doubt can re come back into your life. But if you feel yourself at any one of these stages, I think it's just important to keep going. Like God has more for you. And that's important to remember. Anyway, that's what I think the four stages of the beginning of the spiritual life looks like. So, hey, uh, don't be afraid to ask tough questions about your faith because there's good answers out there. And that's why we have podcasts like this. Uh, don't be discouraged when you pray because that's something to be learned. You have to practice over and over again. Don't be upset if your faith feels just infantile and you only know the basics because we've all been at a place where we've only known the basics. It's okay. Ultimately, going through any of these stages or having any of these experiences uh, aren't necessarily criteria to get into heaven. What God wants is, he doesn't want much, he just wants you. That's what he wants. God wants you. And he wants you to say, I want you back. And I love you and I praise you. And we do that through Mass and all the good things that we talk about on this podcast. Uh, all the sacraments, all the nice stuff. 
So hey, thanks for listening to the producer Nick podcast that took over, clerically speaking, for now. The guys will be coming back, but until then, get ready for more producer Nick! <laughs> oh man. Oh man, guys, that, that, that kind of hurt. Uh, you can find me at Papa Sharapa on Twitter. Uh, peace and God bless.